This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hey friends, welcome to Trashy Divorces, everybody's favorite good podcast about bad relationships. I'm Alicia. Thanks for joining us today, everybody. My name is Stacy. You're dipping your toe into my pond. You're bringing us a little old Hollywood today. I do. I, for us this week, have screen legend Buster Keaton, uh, about whom I knew very little, but in researching the story, I fell in love with the guy and the the eras that he improbably spanned. Really was a fascinating story. Before we begin to uh, bust a move today, hmm. I do have this magic mirror here with a few shout outs to give to our latest supporters at patreon.com, getting ad-free early episodes, little bonuses at the end of main feed, bonuses all through the week too. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for joining us at patreon.com slash trashy divorces to Andrea M and to Tower Velo Bicycle Shop, which is in Fresno, I believe. Hey, Fresno. Thanks to both of y'all. Thanks to all of our Patreon supporters. And thanks to you for coming back to share Another tale of marital misadventure with us. And what should we do now, Alicia? You want it. You got it. We got to go, go, go. <laughs> All right, Stacy, bust a move into old Hollywood with some Buster Keaton. Yep. Sock it to me. Extremely old Hollywood. Origins of Hollywood almost. So last week, Alicia, I took us through a bit of the madness that was part and parcel of the early days of rock and roll. This week, we're going to explore the genius and folly that launched what has become the movie industry, and in particular, a titan of the form's early years, Buster Keaton, one of silent film's most enduring comedians, and one of the best filmmakers in history, most people who know what they're talking about agree. Buster Keaton, who was born into a vaudevillian world and seamlessly or not, survived the transitions to the silent film era and then to talkies while also surviving marriage into one of the most famous families of the day. Wow. Yeah, he's remembered and they're less remembered, it turns out. Buster's childhood was complicated, let's say that. His father, who was Joseph Halley Keaton of Terre Haute, Indiana, uh, he had been born in 1867. Prosperous family. His father owned a grist mill. There were five generations of Josephs going back to the 1600s. It, it, was, it was a thing. They were Quakers, and Buster's grandfather was prosperous enough to buy a hotel in downtown Terre Haute. So Joe Sr., dad, grew up in a booming small city in the Midwest. Fantastic. Where everybody's name's Joe. Yes, where everyone is named Joe. By the time Buster's father, who we're calling Joe Sr., even though he was the fourth or whatever, Joe Sr. was 26. His dad had had enough of his near-do-well spirit, hands him a hundred bucks and a gun, and tells him to go find his fortune. Oh my god. Outside of Indiana. Joe hooked up with what passed for entertainment in the hinterlands. Back in the day, these were called, we would not say this today, these were called Indian Medicine Show. And it was basically a, I'm making air quotes with my fingers, a doctor uh, selling patent medicine 
and had a little stage show to draw a crowd, right? The patent medicines tended to be 50 to 70% alcohol, so they did work. They probably just didn't cure you of anything. There was an effect. In the land before movies, radio, internet, and television, we mm -hmm. had to rely on charlatans. Yes. Traveling from town to town. Yep. To hawk their... Wares. Yeah, Aunt Gertrude's greatest friend or whatever. You know, like they all, they all had names. Anyway, it was all marketing. Charlatans. Okay, so this was somewhere in the Oklahoma Territories. Uh, he was fired pretty quickly for being a little... <laughs> Too familiar with the owner's teenage daughter. Oh, no, that'll that'll get you canned. Joe was. But eight months later, little no, no. <laughs> Myra Cutler said teenage daughter shows up in the Kansas or Nebraska vagrants hotel where he was staying and told him that she intended to be his wife. It was not exactly his first choice, but at all of 17 years old, Myra was not to be denied. They were married on May 31st, 1894 by a justice of the peace who had to reduce his fee on account of Joe not having the full $2 that was due. An auspicious beginning. Should have been a red flag. They will remain married forever, although they're separated by, I think, the 30s. She just never divorced him. That's one way to do it. Ten-year age difference between them. So Buster, Joseph Frank Keaton, later this would be changed to Joseph Francis Keaton, because Frank was Myra's father, oh. and Frank did not bless their union and was a complete jerk to them. And so at some point, his dad was like, your middle name's not Frank, it's Francis. Perfect. You're not named after that jerk? Okay. Back in the days before entertainment and legal recording. I mean, true. Birth certificate's not a huge deal. <laughs> was born October 4th, 1895 in Piqua, Kansas. I think it might be pronounced Piquay. I'm not sure. A speck of a town most notable for being a train transit point to move Kansas's prodigious hay harvest to parts unknown. The family was basically unimaginably poor by today's standards. Baby Joe slept in a suitcase for the first two years of his life. Aw, baby while, Joe. Mm -hmm, while his parents continued their itinerant performance gig. Their neglect was palpable, and the baby was prone to injury as a result not really warm and doting parents. For instance, at one performance, his mom had pinned Baby Buster into a steamer trunk with the lid open, of course, so the child could breathe. We call that a babysitter in 19. Well, <laughs> apparently a stagehand bumped the steamer trunk. Oh, no. Didn't realize there was a baby in there. The lid gets knocked closed. <gasps> and when Myra comes off stage and goes to check on the kid, he has nearly suffocated. Oh, my God. Mm -hmm. This is terrible. Oh, this is his whole... Yeah, he sacrificed his body from early on. He would also toddle onto the stage whenever he felt like it. Enough that his parents were really afraid that they were going to get fired by the theater owner or the crew, like whoever they were well, working for. Once you for. learn how to escape the babysitter and you can crawl out of the steamer trunk. Sure. <laughs> um, yeah, sometimes the toddler's antics would provoke laughter from the audience. I think that may be the only reason they weren't fired. One story that all three told was that when he was about 20 months old, a bad storm woke him up in his second story bed. He toddled over to investigate what was happening outside and was sucked out the window by a tornado. Oh, my God. Hurtling across the night sky until he came to rest in a field. This strikes me as a tall tale, but the type of tall tale that you can tell in vaudeville. Who knows? 
It's quite an image, baby in a tornado. That should be like a Smith song or something. Right. Baby, baby in, in a, a tornado. tornado. <laughs> That's not even the incident that earned him his nickname. Oh, no. At 18 months or six months, depending on who was telling the story and when, Baby Joe fell down a long flight of stairs backstage and emerged crying but unhurt. A fellow actor, years later, all would insist it was Harry Houdini, but they didn't actually meet Harry Houdini for several years yet, declared, My, what a buster! Aww. The name obviously stuck. Another time, and this one is confirmed uh, by the lack of uh, end of finger, Baby Buster, who was fascinated by machines his whole life and clearly from birth, he got his hand caught in a clothes washing ringer. Like, it just grabbed hold of one of his fingers and they were unable to get it. They had to call a doctor to amputate. It was just just pulp at the end. So that was not great. The family floundered through Kansas for a few more years, during which they did meet and travel with an up-and-coming Harry Houdini. And they took a lot of notes about his extremely professional approach to the work that they were all doing. In 1899, Joe, Myra, and young Buster arrived in New York City, where Joe intended to finally break into real vaudeville performing. No more Indian medicine shows in cow towns, playing to audiences at tens while some huckster sold booze. Oh no, a new century was racing toward the little family and Joe intended to be its star. Modest problem, perhaps, for the duo. They were not good performers. Uh, (laughs) And in all of their years struggling, they had yet to create a truly memorable act, Mm. much less one that they could perform well. In October of 1900, perhaps exhausted by running back and forth from the theater to their boarding house room to care for Buster, they brought him on stage during a matinee performance. He and his father were both in tramp costumes, a red wig, baggy pants, big shoes, and Buster was told to just sit quietly and watch what his parents were doing. The theater owner was super pissed. Like, just, this is not a daycare. It's a place of business. Kids aren't supposed to be on stage anyway, whatever. But not long after, seeing that there were a ton of kids at a matinee performance, he was like, why don't you bring the kid out again? Uh, This is how Marion Mead explains what happened next in her biography, Buster Keaton, Cut to the Chase. In that matinee, Buster and his father performed a variation of the roughhouse that took place between them offstage, when Joe would toss the little boy up on a table or slide him down a wall. Then they began to... I'm sorry, what? To your child? Oh, it... This is... He's a baby. He's a baby. He put the baby in the steamer Mm. trunk very lovingly, very carefully. I'm sorry, continue. No, this is significant child abuse. This is, is the, yeah, what it I'm, sounds what like what I'm about to describe. Okay. So, yeah. Significant. So, I will say someone who knew Buster was asked why did adult Buster Keaton not hate his father? And he said, "I don't know. I think he just thinks it's un-American to hate your father, so he doesn't." It's terrible. Okay, so um, Marion Mead continues. Then they began to improvise on the theme of a father attempting to discipline a mischievous son. Mm -mm. Joe picked up Buster and walked him to the footlights. Father hates to be rough, he said, giving him a kiss and turning away. The only way to raise kids, Joe confided to the audience, was to be gentle but firm. Never let him walk over you. In a wink, Buster threw his basketball and knocked Joe flat on his face. Buster chased the ball, intrepidly stepping over his fallen father. The audience ate it up. This is like, um, 
Homer and Bart Simpson. Like, you know, Homer Simpson, like, throttling his son's neck sure. is, uh, has always been a bit of a controversial... The, anyway, the rest of the week, Buster invented fresh ways to torment his father while Joe attempted to discipline him. Joe dropped Buster on stage, spun him around, and bounced him against a piece of scenery. As a finale, he swung him high up into the air, then hurled him into the wings. The audience waited in shocked silence. <gasps> Several seconds went by before a stagehand came on stage carrying Buster, who was grinning impudently. Is this yours, Mr. Keaton? asked the hand. By then the audience had begun to laugh uproariously. I don't think this is very funny at all, but... Little Buster was clever and uninhibited, a natural jelly-legged little clown. Joe realized that his boy might transform their ordinary act into something quite special, and the theater owner gladly paid an extra $10 for the child. <laughs> All works out. So yeah, that was that was from Marion Mead's book. Minor problem, and uh, yes, it is actually a minor problem in New York at the time. Children under the age of seven were not allowed to be on stage in any capacity. Oh, and children older than seven could be on stage to perform speaking lines, but they could not dance, sing, or perform acrobatics of any kind. Strictly prohibited. The Keatons, realizing this was a bit of a problem, joined a touring company that took them out west while they figured out how they can make their five-year-old seven. So there, there was the group was called the Jerry's. It was a descendant of Elbridge Jerry, who invented gerrymandering, had set up a private kids' rights group. Uh, it would become what we would call child protective services, but at the time, children did not have rights separate from their parents. Huh. They were property. You could mail children in the United States. Excuse me? For a, a long period of time. Yeah, that was how kids were transited to their grandparents. They would they would be mailed. Kids did not have, like, the first cases against child abuse, uh, animals, like pets, had more rights than human children. And so the lawyers had to present the children as animals to point out that their parents were violating their right. Yeah. Anyway, minor problem. So they go out west and they start sending letters to the Jerry's who are like contracted with the state of New York to enforce these rules. They were trying to keep kids out of factories. They were, right, they wanted kids in schools. Like the literacy rate was climbing into the 90s in this period. It was, it was a team effort, but it was a pain for the Keaton family. So they lied about Buster's age. They're writing letters to them saying that he, he's seven. Uh, they began billing him as Buster, the smallest real comedian. So that, you know, we're billing him as someone who speaks lines, not as someone who dances and hits his father. Sure. And gets hit by his father and gets thrown around by his... Anyway, Buster was the solution to his parents' ongoing problems with life on the stage, their own lack of talent, their inability to make any real money their inability to attract attention in a very competitive scene. Suddenly, the trio with this wacky, they build it as wholesome fun. I mean, it's just a different, just a different way of seeing this wholesome family fun. Bring your kids to watch this other kid get beaten up by his dad. No, this is like a father-son Punch and Judy show, which is never held any appeal for me yeah. in the first place. So suddenly the three are a sought after act and the money came rolling in. Like they had had a $50 a week salary that suddenly was two twenty-five, And instead of three performances a day at the end, like closing out for bigger acts, they were featured acts and they only had to do two shows a day. 
Buster's workday was 36 minutes long. More money, less work. Come on, you can't argue with that. Let's pause for the cause here with this newly prosperous little family of performers and a five-year-old star in the making. Yeah, let's take a minute to hear from our sponsors. We'll be back on the flip. Hey, Trash Pandas. When you need a brain break from your day, let me recommend the game June's Journey for Android and iPhone. It's a hidden object mystery game where you are solving a murder, uncovering family secrets, and, I don't know, exposing official corruption? all in an extremely stylish 1920s setting. Every scene takes you deeper into the mystery and introduces you to an expansive cast of characters as June Parker explores the questions surrounding her sister's apparent murder-suicide at the family's beachfront estate. Add your own elements to the island from lush gardens to gorgeous new buildings. This story has so many twists and turns. Right now, we are on a global journey attempting to rescue June's niece, Virginia. It's a great combo of gameplay. It's a memory puzzle, a design project, an intriguing storyline with genuinely fabulous art. When you want to let your mind wander, relax into this glorious 1920s murder mystery and get lost in the fun. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Sibling fights are unavoidable, but what if every fight you had was under a microscope on a global scale? That's the reality for brothers Prince William and Prince Harry. They were each other's closest friends and allies since the death of their mother, but that all began to crack as they married and took wildly different approaches to their royal duties. Wondery's podcast, Disentel, is hosted by comedians Sidney Battle and Matt Belisai. Each episode unpacks one of pop culture's most iconic celebrity feuds, and they recently took a deeper look into the real reason William versus Harry started. It's actually much bigger than these two brothers, stretching back into the history of the British monarchy. Did their feud start with the royal family's mistreatment of Meghan Markle, or was it something that started much earlier? Follow Disentel on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, smallest working comedian. <laughs> yeah, smallest real comedian. So as you may have guessed, the Three Keatons Act, now that they're a little more popular, making some headlines... Still involved a lot of, I mean, I wrote faux violence for my script, but I don't... Doesn't sound too Violence, faux. yeah. Yeah. Uh, that had been such an inspiration. So the family dealt with the Jerry's, the Child Protective Services people, pretty regularly. And the Jerry's became kind of the, you know, nightmare boogeyman of Buster's childhood. Because if he wasn't able to work, uh, his family did not have money. So... The act also became rougher as time went on, with Myra eventually sewing a suitcase handle into Buster's clothes so Joe could more effortlessly throw him into the orchestra pit. Oh my god. I've never heard of anything so sad. He just ties little suitcase handles into his clothes? No, she sewed them. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, sewed, and then so you can just pick up the kid and toss just to make it easier on your own physical components? I mean... You know... that This is child abuse. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Joe's, Just making Joe's, sure we're clear. Joe's young-ish, but I mean, he's not like... He's not like six. He's not going to bounce back from like a pulled shoulder. Yeah, there was an incident where um, Joe... There were some patrons being rowdy at a performance, and Joe literally threw Buster oh at God. one of their heads and broke the guy's nose. Um, ended up being billed. He had to pay to replace the guy's hat. 
<laughs> the broken nose, not a problem. The throwing of your own child, not a problem. But that hat had to be... <laughs> wow. Different time. Different time. One of Buster Keaton's nicknames is Great Stoneface. Mm. He's the ultimate straight man in yeah. his performances. He's doing incredibly acrobatic stuff and the world is in chaos all around him like i watched his movie the general and he's like running a locomotive by himself and he's having to go back and collect wood to keep the fire going it's just well people are shooting at him and the things being derailed all the time it's really it's it's a lot hey baby in a tornado he's a pro mm -hmm. but Yeah. yeah but he his impassive expression was one of his hallmarks um this developed in these early childhood vaudeville days however much his father was hurting him in the act he was never allowed to cry or even whimper however much fun he might be having in the course of the act he was not allowed to smile his father was known to his face at him during a show if he was betraying a single emotion in front of the crowd He learned the hard way how to fall and tumble safely, thank God. But even so, his father, whose specialty was hitch kicks, which I believe is a jumping spinning type of kick, was not the most reliable of co-stars. Joe once misjudged one of these flying kicks and smashed so hard into Buster's head that the child was unconscious for 18 hours. He was eight. And they had him back on stage two hours after he regained consciousness. Okay, I need something good to happen to this child. Are we getting to the good part, babe? Please. (laughs) I suppose. Other performers had big concerns about what exactly was happening with the Keaton Family Act. So Sarah Bernhardt at one point threatened to have Joe arrested for his treatment of his son. Uh, Also, when Buster was eight, oh yes, his parents took him to school for the very first time. First grade, a situation that lasted a single day and left Buster baffled because he's surrounded by a bunch of dumb children who are actually younger than him because he should have started first grade at five or six. Right. Focusing on nonsense like spelling and geography when he knew there were important theater things to attend to. And this is what are we even doing here? It's so, a waste of my time. Yeah. So they, they love it. He, he was functionally illiterate his entire life. Wow. So another vignette, I suppose, from the Marion Mead book, they took the show to England at one point, thinking, like, we're going to hit it big in oldie London town. And after their first performance, the owner of the theater came up to Joe and said, is that kid adopted? And Joe said no. And he said, mate, I thought you had an adopted kid that you didn't care about at all. Like, the audiences never were, like, they had a one-week run. It was not extended, and then they went home. The Brits did not like watching. Yeah, I would not have enjoyed that show. Mm -hmm. However, greater prosperity meant that the little touring troupe could also have a little bit more privacy. And so when Buster was about 10, his parents began creating siblings for him because they now had separate beds to sleep in. And so mom and dad had a little alone time. This was a source of genuine sibling rivalry for Buster, particularly because when his baby brother was born, dad immediately was like, well, if Buster's like this, this one's going to be great too, and started trying to incorporate a toddler into their act in New York, which was illegal. So they actually did bring him on stage when the Jerrys were present, and uh, they got kicked out of New York for two years. 
Wow. They were told they could not work in New York for two years uh, because... Those Jerry's are on top of things. 1908. Finally, the family is well off enough to purchase a summer home in Michigan at the Actors Colony on Lake Muskegon. I think the town was Bluffton. This is where they would spend summers for like seven or eight years. And all of Buster and his siblings are all like, that's the only place that life was not weird and dark and frightening. 1914, none other than William Randolph Hearst offers the Three Keatons, that was the name of their troupe, uh, a movie. And they angrily turn it down (laughs) uh, at the very birth of cinema a few years before, according to Marion Mead, quote, film producers were reluctant to identify actors to the viewing public for fear they might become too well-known and demand more money. (laughs) Actors, on the other hand, nervous that any association with movies might jeopardize their stage careers, didn't want to be recognized. Worked out for everybody. But Buster had worked his way from childhood into his teenage years, and as he'd gotten older, the show with his dad was becoming more violent and weird. It's one thing when a cute toddler or a cute seven-year-old, right? It's different when it's a 15-year-old guy. And Joe, for his part, was drinking more, was drinking harder stuff, and was increasingly coming to stage fully drunk, meaning that his timing was off and he was more liable to hurt Buster. Mm-mm. Eventually, their show was basically the two of them breaking chairs and broom handles on each other's bodies. Now it's time for Buster to bust a move on out of there. After a particularly bad run of shows in San Francisco, Buster and his mom abandoned Joe and headed back to Michigan, from which Buster headed to New York to figure out his next steps. Great. Mm -hmm. Now something good's going to happen. Perhaps. Perhaps. But yeah, end of the three Keatons. Thank goodness. The other siblings were not into it, like. That was that. So Buster lands a role in a play, and that's all well and good, but before the play made it to stage, he bumped into one Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle. No. Who was then making films at New York's Talmadge Studios under contract with Joseph M. Schenck. No way. Legendary studio exec from from this era. Arbuckle was just about at the top of his career right then, and the young vaudevillian was fascinated by the mechanics of the camera that, you know, there were cameras all over all over Fatty's studio, Roscoe's studio. He borrowed, um, Buster borrowed one of Roscoe's cameras, took it back to his hotel room, completely disassembled it. Again, his fascination with machinery from, you know, losing his finger all those years ago understood like learned how it worked where the film was coming how light entered like the whole thing took it apart put it back together put it back together brought it back to roscoe the next day so it was here that buster met some of and he was hired on the spot by the way too some of their shorts are just really really very funny even today so it was here that buster met some major players in his life for the next decade or few the talmadge sisters It's a trio that included two of Hollywood's biggest female stars, Norma and Constance, Mm -hmm. were the the famous ones. And then Sister Natalie was not really into acting. She would, like, answer fan mail and do the books and stuff. She She had a role. They were sort of marketed as a trio, but she was the non actor one. It was, it was odd. Their mother, they had a momager, took Ah. care of all that. Yeah. 
Yeah, nothing new under the sun. The mm-hmm. story remains the same. So Buster, of course, also met Joseph Shank, who was a studio executive, and he was the husband of Norma Talmadge. Uh, they'd married in 1916. And Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle himself, who would not only mentor young Buster, but would later hand over reins that would make Buster one of the most successful actors and directors of the silent film era. All told, Buster would appear in 14 Fatty Arbuckle short films wow. through 1920. And if that number sounds low, given what we know about the speed with which Hollywood churned stuff out back then, credit some of that to the U.S. Army and the little kerfuffle known as World War I. Yeah. Buster enlisted in the war effort. He was the right age for it. And I think he feared that any appearance of like shirking his patriotic duty would be a bad look for, you know, he was aspiring to become a star. So off he goes. He ends up spending an extremely painful winter in France, sleeping rough, like on the ground alongside his fellow soldiers. And apparently the rain kind of never stopped that winter. Very, very bleak. He became very ill developed a cold, which metastasized into raging ear infections. And this left him partially deaf for the rest of his life. Oh, wow. And like, if he got a cold later in life, he was fully deaf until like the congestion cleared out. Like, all right. So he, uh, it's not good to be partially deaf in a war zone. He was nearly shot by a sentry outside of his camp one night when he could not hear the guy demanding, you know, password for just to make sure that, you know, right. he's on the right side. Anyway, once home, <laughs> blessedly, the war ended, he got right back to work making comedic silence with Fatty Arbuckle, who would soon enough be offered $3 million to make 18 pictures for Paramount. Fatty transferred his controlling interest in the studio to Buster, and Joseph Shank set up Buster Keaton Productions, where he began to create a long string of successful comedies out in Los Angeles. Meanwhile, on the right coast, Constance Talmadge had recently eloped. Years after Norma, of course, had eloped with Joseph Shank. This left Natalie, the one who didn't do much acting, the middle Talmadge sister who mostly just replied to fan letters for her sisters as the only one without a husband. She'd been friends with Buster for years by this point and sent him a letter basically saying, I'll head west if you're into it. (laughs) And for reasons that likely have more to do with rising star Buster Keaton marrying into the extremely famous Talmadge family than anything like love in particular, he said he could be into it. Buster and Natalie married on May 31st, 1921, and immediately settled into their unhappy union. Natalie, under the tutelage of her momager, if there was ever a momager, it was Peg Talmadge, She had been raised with a healthy skepticism of men, so her new husband's vocation as a comedian and movie maker was treated with quite a bit of contempt by the women of the Talmadge clan. So when Natalie and her sisters were quite young, their alcoholic father one day announced that he was off to the store to buy some food. Oh, no. And he never came back. Going to get some milk. Yeah, that's terrible. Run into the corner store, back in a few, and then never... Never returned. So mom taught her daughters to hate their father and all men in general. That's some peg of my hate right there. (laughs) Meanwhile, Buster was heading off to the studio that bore his own name every day, and he was seriously innovating in this new medium. He was developing new ways to shoot scenes, new approaches to set building, 
new gags, uh, just special effects. Like he was an early pioneer of special effects. He's got movies where all of the characters are him and they developed a way of masking the camera so that they could then back the film up and like move the mask over to the other side and he could act. It's so he's doing innovative, super things. interesting, innovative stuff. So, yeah, I mean, his work was leaving audiences around the world in stitches and informing the work of others who perhaps were leaving them in tears or joy. But, you know, everything was new here. He was just figuring out how to do the things he wanted to do. So, you know, the Talmadge hatred of him was not fair. Um, <laughs> Yikes. And Natalie's demands did not diminish as the marriage proceeded. He had a house built for her. She hated it. There were no tennis courts. Oh. There was no place for the servants to live. They didn't have servants. <laughs> it's really funny. When <laughs> when Buster first arrived in Hollywood, it was it was a sleepy, workmanlike town. You had to be on set at 7 in the morning. You'd get home from the shooter on 10 at night. There wasn't really a nightlife because everyone was working these very, very long days. And then... I think after the war, the studios began to want to to market the glamour of Hollywood. And so, like, Fatty Arbuckle went from living in, like, a rented bungalow to a mansion and was throwing these lavish parties, which, of course, would end up getting him into huge trouble later with uh, that scandal about how he maybe killed a woman. So early 1920s, downtown Hollywood, Los Angeles is just expanding. There's nothing over in Beverly Hills. Right. This goes back to Alan Azimova and right. her Garden of Allah Hotel. And she was part of Buster's group. Mary Pickford and Douglas Fairbanks. Also part of Buster's group. Building Pickfair. Mm-hmm. Uh, Charlie Chaplin building next door to there. Like, right. There's a Death Laurel Canyon yes. and its development. There's a whole scene happening mm-hmm. in the early 20s, mostly helped with building in the hills because trolleys had been invented. Interesting. It all sort of comes together. Electric cars could get you up. The hills where you could not get to them before. Hmm. We've talked about this in a few episodes in the past, but it really is interesting how everything does kind of come together. Yeah, yeah. And Hollywood really transformed. I mean, this is mm-hmm. a this is just an era of like transformations happening in in all of this stuff that Buster is is in, his career, his city, his like everything. So anyway, Natalie hated this house. Because there's no room for servants. No room for servants. Uh, She mocked his money management. And, like, he certainly agreed that he didn't know anything about it. And his mother had been the money manager for the three Keatons, not his father. So it actually made a lot of sense for him that his wife should take that over. So he just sort of handed all the financial control of his studio and his own income over to his wife, who did not like him. She spent lavishly, as one might expect, of the sister of two movie stars, but, like, he wasn't miserly, and, like, he he loved some flamboyant, he was a gambler, and he liked a good drink, and... So we're in 1920s. So, yeah, he wasn't judging. Uh, Over time, Natalie's shoe collection grew to 150 pairs. Wow. Many of whom she had never actually worn, uh, and her weekly clothing budget, when Buster's Earnings worth their peak was seven hundred to nine hundred dollars in the twenties. Wow! I don't know what that is in. That's mo- a lot of clothes. That's a lot of money. Yeah, it's a lot of clothes. Then Natalie was pregnant, 
And suddenly the entire Talmadge clan was living in Buster's home. No. Doting on his wife and making fun of him pretty much to his face. It wasn't great. But on June 2nd, 1922, Joseph Talmadge Keaton was born. And that was pretty all right. A seventh Joseph in the Keaton line, Buster was carrying on that family tradition. At least he did up until Natalie started calling their son Jimmy. (laughs) She would later have his name legally changed to Jimmy. Sure, why not? This was not a good marriage. Eventually, the pair would have two sons. Robert Talmadge Keaton joined the family in 1924. But first, Buster and Natalie would appear in a movie together. It's worth noting that Natalie was the only Talmadge sister to have given birth. So she finally had a thing of her own that her sisters couldn't compete with. And she had done bit parts in their movies over the years. Like if they just needed, you know, sit at this desk and say this line, whatever, right? So her sisters were fabulously famous at this point, And none of them at the time knew that their stars were already beginning to fade. This was a whole new process, like the cycle of screen stars we hadn't had a cycle of screen stars yet this was the first time cycle there could be a cycle of screen stars natalie's turn in our hospitality 1923 let her have a moment in the sun in a movie that turned into a smash hit it grossed more than half a million dollars domestically and it gave her a high point from which she could announce her retirement from her acting (laughs) career perfect such as it was Perfect. Poof. Okay, pause here for another quick break from our sponsors. This is sort of where Buster's life and career trajectory start to change. He had conquered the stage and he had conquered the screen, but the industry was about to undergo the change to talkies, and the studio system would soon run everything, including Buster. Back in just a minute. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, I'm rooting for Buster to get the heck out of this marriage. It happens. Okay. It takes a while for things to get good for Buster. I think he just experienced, we talked about this with like the Beatles and all that, just the deformity of being super famous, super young. And he was famous from the time he was five. Like he was a star at five. Toward the end of shooting Our Hospitality... Natalie's second pregnancy was visible, so this required some creative shots to hide all that. You can't be showing your immense baby belly on screen. Well, they're doing all those innovative things, though. After the baby was born the following February, she decided that was all the kids she wanted, so she kicked Buster out of their bedroom and made him move into a guest room in, uh, I think, the larger house that he had made for her after she hated the first one. 
At first, he sort of rolled with this, but after several months, he got a little worked up and he vowed to Natalie and her mother that if he wanted sex, he was going to have it. Oh. But he promised to be discreet in his affairs and not to embarrass their family. Joseph Schenk, husband of Norma Talmadge, was finding marriage to a Talmadge to be unhappy in a different way in this approximate time frame. In particular, Norma had fallen in love with one of her leading men in 1926, and while she had asked for a divorce, Joseph was still very much invested in a financial sense in her success on the screen. But the distance Joseph was experiencing from the Talmages maybe was carrying over because after a trio of Buster Keaton independent features went over budget and underperformed at the box office, Joseph decided maybe it was time for a separation for them as well. Oh, dun dun dun. In a move that Buster would regret to his death, Joseph, who knew that the advent of talkies was going to put a lot of smaller studios like Buster's out of business, sold Buster's contract to MGM. Buster would get $3,000 a week. There were a variety of other generous terms sprinkled into the contract, but he was cast from the heights of independent film production to the hell of the studio system under Louis B. Mayer and Irving Thalberg, and he did not... He was not used to having a boss in any meaningful sense. He was used to running the show. It's what he'd done since he was five. Having been indie for years, he chafed at the top-down assembly line approach to filmmaking that made MGM super successful. His unhappiness mounted, as did his drinking. He would seek help multiple times over the next few years to try to get his drinking under control, but at the time, he could not give it up. And because he was... Getting sloppy and drunk, his womanizing also became less discreet. Oh, no. In one notable incident, he attempted to break off a relationship with an actress named Kathleen Key, who reacted by trashing his MGM dressing room in a very public spectacle. Oh, no. The studio and Buster played it off, telling reporters that she had asked him for a loan and freaked out when he said no. Meanwhile, the studio told him to pay her off to go away, a $10,000 check that he wrote to his lawyers to go and handle that for him. But remember how Natalie had taken over all their finances? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that happened. So she saw that he had sent a $10,000 check to their lawyers and knew what was happening in their already anemic marriage. Going back to uh, Mary and Mead's book for (laughs) what happened next. Emotions cooled down for a while. Then, on July 5th, another battle royale sent Natalie to her mother's house, dragging the boys with her. Late one afternoon, Keaton drove over to the studio. Outside the casting office stood an attractive extra. In a matter of minutes, he had picked her up and was heading back to Beverly Hills. At the Italian villa, he led the woman upstairs to Natalie's room. Oh, no, no, no. Walking into her famous closet, he glanced around at the fur coats, evening gowns, leather pumps, and dozens of designer suits and dresses. Suddenly, he began to rip clothing off the hangers. (sighs) Take whatever you want, he said to the woman. He tossed the outfits into a pile, a mink coat, dresses, underwear, even Natalie's pale silk stockings. During the evening, he drank heavily. Then he and the woman drove to San Pedro, where the Natalie, a boat he had gotten for Natalie, who did not like boats. So... (laughs) Oh, this is so (laughs) ill-fated. Was birthed. He had insisted that she help herself to as much of Natalie's closet as she could carry. Keaton wanted to go for a cruise, but the captain refused. He needed the permission of its owner, Natalie. Uh. 
On the verge of passing out, Keaton took the woman into one of the cabins. At two o'clock in the morning, he woke up. Standing over them were Natalie and Constance with two private detectives and oh, a God. public official. He didn't name the public official, but it was like a local DA or a local cop or something. Um, Keaton watched as the detectives made notes that could be used to establish adultery. Whoops. Then Natalie and Connie scooped up Natalie's cocktail dresses and left. Natalie filed for divorce about three weeks later. Yeah, I bet. Pushing Buster into one of those uncomfortable places where he was forced to avoid dealing with painful things. So he just did not. He basically just drank to not deal with. And this is like why he could still take care of his father. He had his father on the payroll. Meanwhile, MGM was trying desperately to dry him out and send him to a clinic for treatment of his drinking. After that, a registered nurse stayed on hand to continue his care and keep him, they hoped, sober enough to work. Didn't really work out. The nurse was Mae Scriven, and she would become, for a few miserable years anyway, his second wife. In the first instance, they married in Tijuana seven months before his divorce from Natalie was complete. Oh no! Oops. Natalie would later date Howard Hughes, by the way, our jewelry tray carrying... Affectionato. Yeah. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. In fairness, May wasn't excelling at nursing Buster's sobriety. She was a child of California, after all, and she knew she didn't have what it takes to succeed on the screen. So her ambition in life was different. She had decided that she wanted to be a movie star's wife. And by golly, here's Buster Keaton. A real bonafide movie star. And he needs me. Uh, One of his kids would later say that May probably most resembled a groupie of the era. Hmm. Between their first wedding and their legal wedding, I guess seven months later, MGM got sick of Buster's recklessness, his absenteeism. I mean, alcoholism was destroying his ability to work. They fired him. Another fun thing happened, too. While Buster was abroad trying to work, MGM's blacklist was a real thing. Natalie went to a judge and had their son's last names changed from Keaton to Talmadge. Oh, Natalie. She made it impossible for the boys to see their father. And in fairness, he was often traveling to try to work, you know, outside of Hollywood. But when the oldest turned 16 and got his driver's license in a car, he started covertly visiting his dad with his younger brother, which was very nice. Things with May were going downhill fast. More from Mary and Mead. After two years of marriage, May's charms had petered out and she bored Keaton senseless. May had married with golden expectations, but economic realities were getting her down, and now she considered going back to work. Rather than return to nursing, she decided to become a hairstylist and persuaded her husband to stake her the 5000 for her own business, the Buster Keaton Beauty Parlor at the Hollywood Knickerbocker Hotel. When he balked at having his name on a beauty shop, she changed it to Mrs. Buster Keaton Beauty Parlor. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Yeah, well, then things go poorly. Uh, Fourth of July, while the couple spent a few days in Santa Barbara, Buster began to behave a little too friendly with another guest at the hotel, Leah Clampett Sewell. She's a wealthy Los Angeles socialite, and she had recently generated some spicy headlines over a kinky sexual misadventure. Mrs. Sewell and her husband, the millionaire yachtsman Barton Sewell, had been involved in an extremely messy wife-swapping divorce suit. So there had been a Malibu beach party where um, Leah was handcuffed to the bed and spent some fun time with actor Walter Emerson while her husband spent some fun time with Walter Emerson's wife. 
I guess this uh, ended up as part of a divorce filing. And anyway, everybody had a little pineapple punch. In Santa Barbara, Leah and Buster became chummy. And on the afternoon of July 4th, May paid an unannounced visit to Leah's room. And uh uh-oh, Buster, why are you naked in bed with this naked woman? Uh Uh-oh. So she races home and waits for Buster to come back to apologize. And he just doesn't. He just stays with Leah at the hotel for like a week. Okay. That's one way to... So, yeah. Make your message clear. That's not great. Um, so, you know, they start divorcing and May became pretty obsessed with the divorce. Like she ran her own lawyer off by pestering him on the daily about status of the case. Like by the time the case came to court on October 4th, Keaton's 40th birthday, May had to drop Leah Sewell as a co-respondent and settle just on the grounds of cruelty. Mm. She testified that her husband was ice cold and crabby. He criticized everything I did and everything that happened, including keeping the car away too long when he wanted to use it. Buster was not there. Buster does not do confrontation. Buster, like, perpetually skips out on court stuff. Anyway, so the divorce decree was granted by default. This sent Buster into a deep depression he now has two ex-wives. May wanted $750 a month alimony. Natalie was demanding $3,300 a month in delinquent child support. He is having trouble finding work. It's just, it's all very, it's very bad for a while. And he's drinking. He did get himself sober in the aftermath of all of this, though, and stayed that way for five years. When he resumed drinking, I think it was a more moderate situation for him, and partly because his fortunes had once again turned. He would marry one more time, and this one would stick through the end of his life, and MGM would bring him back to work on films again. Third wife Eleanor Norris was 21 years old when they wed. He was in his 50s. Oh my. (laughs) Okay. But it worked. She was a dancer at MGM, and so for years they would commute to the set together. She was his best friend, his confidant. Uh, She was his creative and performing partner. And she was the protector of his legacy for the rest of his days and hers because she lived through 98. Buster and Eleanor were married on May 29th, 1940 in the chambers of... He really likes to get married in May. (laughs) In the chambers of Superior Court Judge Edward Brand, they were accompanied by the immediate families his mother, Myra, his father, Joe, his sister and brother, Louise and Harry, and then Dot and Jane Norris. The judge at first assumed that Buster was marrying Dot Norris, who was four years his senior, and not Dot's daughter. But anyway, the word obey had been omitted from the ceremony, but he jokingly told the press his wife's word would be law around the house just the same. Perfect. The newlyweds departed for a fishing trip at June Lake in the High Sierras. So one of the things that was happening here was what we can think of as the procession of the ages, right? Like Hollywood runs on the new and the young, and inevitably the big stars of the 19-teens and 1920s were aging, happens to us all. Younger talents were rushing in to find their spot in front of and behind the camera. But another thing that was perhaps new in the era of electricity would also happen And that is each generation's nostalgia for the stuff they grew up on. I was thinking, like, in the 1300s, if you were, like, 50, were you mad that, like, the music in the tavern 
was not what you can only be like twelve fifty again. Right. I I think this is a new. You know, like in Atlanta, the 99X radio station has has relaunched, which we grew up with. Everything old is new again. Buster had a third or fourth or fifth chapter, however you want to count that, on television in the 1950s. He had his own show for a while, and then he just appeared on all kinds of variety shows. He had some 70 appearances between 1950 and 1964. He also worked in commercials. He and Eleanor would go to Paris and work in a circus. Uh, he got to flaunt that like enduring athletic ability that let him do all of those visual gags that worked so well in silent films. Buster Keaton died of lung cancer. He had picked up smoking during the war on February 1st, 1966 at the age of 70. And Eleanor would spend the next three decades of her life, again, she died in 1998, making herself available to film historians, biographers, journalists, and silent film enthusiasts to preserve her husband's legacy. Well, that's nice. So we talked about bringing back Halos, and I think Buster, who, look, the man certainly had some trashy bits, I think he deserves Halos. He was just, like, wrecking his body for the entertainment of others from early childhood, but, like, it was his electrified brain that left this indelible mark on the world through the films he constructed in that era where just everything was new. Everything they were doing was brand new. So a very cool life. Two divorces. The marriage to May, he would later just pretend he'd been on a long, long blackout and didn't even remember any part of it. Like he would just, he would just erase the parts he didn't care for. (laughs) So that's Buster. It's Buster Keaton. Well done. That connected to a ton ton. of old Hollywood Uh stories. For our spider egg, I've remembered I do have a little bit about that house they bought. Sure, the Italian villa. All of its Hollywood connections, because it comes in a million places. Patreon listeners, stay tuned for that spider egg at the end of this episode. Stacy, well done. Thank you, thank you. Trash Pandas, well done. Thanks for spending your time with us today. We're going to be back on Sunday I got a, whoa, trashy, trashy, super trashy story coming for you this weekend. In the meantime, you can always check us out at patreon.com slash trashy divorces if you're looking for a little bit more trash in your life. Absolutely. All right, friends, until next time, I hope you're going to keep your hands clean. I hope you keep your hearts trashy. Just say no to hitch kicks to your kids. Yeah, you're not kidding. (laughs) Bye, y'all. Big love. Bye. And thanks to you for listening. Trashy Divorces is a Hemlock Creatives production created and produced right here in Atlanta, Georgia by us, Stacy and Alicia, with a little research and writing help from the brilliant Melissa O. Our art is by Sydney V. Smith. That's Sydney V. Smith at carbonmade.com. And our music is used with permission of Ratsy. Check her out at Ratsy's store on Instagram and definitely drop into Ratsy's store anytime you're in Oberlin, Ohio. You can contact us at trashydivorces at gmail.com or find us on the World Wide Web at trashydivorces.com. If you need more trash candy in your life, our Patreon community includes some of the very best humans around and thousands of hours of bonus content at every level of support. Join the fun at patreon.com slash trashydivorces. Interested in some Trashy Divorces swag? Check out our merch 
workshop and Trash Panda Enthusiasm Society at bit.ly slash trashy gear. Want to advertise with us? Reach out to sales at advertisecast.com for more information. And last but not least, come play with us on social media. I keep most of our Trashy Divorces Instagram hopping. Stacy and I share it up over on Facebook, including our Trashy Divorces podcast discussion group. Come join us over there, and thanks again, everybody, for listening. Keep it trashy, y'all.